Hello, and welcome to the How Many Geese Festival of Nature special. I'm Roddy Shaw. And I'm Jack Baddams. And if you're looking for a nature podcast which doesn't take itself too seriously, then we are the natural selection. On today's show. So imagine parking your car, going into the shop, coming back, and now there's nine and a half thousand two inch bugs on your car screaming. <laughs> which animal is the sexiest? Objectively. Mm, okay. And then the penguins arrive. It now just sounds like you're spinning the wheel of random animals. It is. And then the tigers showed up with their little snorkel masks on. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about the Festival of Nature, Jack. Why are we here? So we've been very kindly invited uh, to do a special episode of How Many Geese for the Festival of Nature, which yep. is the UK's largest free celebration of nature. And for this year, this week, they've gathered 100 bits of nature content from all sorts of different creators, uh, and we've been asked to fill one of those slots with a How Many Geese special. So as part of that, we wanted to think, how can we do something different? Um, we've got our usual stuff, of course, of trying to find the interesting aspects of nature and always looking to fight an animal in the process. Um, but this being the festival of nature, we thought, why not think about festivals in nature? Aha, so change one many, word. How Many Geese Festival of Nature special about nature's festivals. Yes. Get the t-shirts printed. Smashed it. So thinking about what makes a festival, it's hard, obviously, because you're not getting animals with balloons, you know, inflatables, blimps, that kind of thing. No, sadly. Yeah, of course. But the parallel I drew, the connection was just mass gatherings. Mm. And we know that there are some big events throughout nature. People can maybe picture or maybe grew up with Morgan Freeman's March of the Penguins. Yeah. That's a big one. Yeah. But of course, wanted to find some slightly different ones. And looking into it, I found that these gatherings happen at different times of the year, happen, some of them are regular, some of them are less frequent. So I wanted to start with a gathering which happens every day in mm -hmm. the same place. Okay. And if you were to guess what animal I might start with, Jack? Okay, uh, a gathering that happens every day in the same place. That so I might start bats. with? Bats. Yep, bats. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm taking us to Indonesia, okay. to the deer cave. Oh. Now, we know that bats exist in roosts, and th here is a cave with a roost of over three million bats. Wow. Now, if that's the first wow, wait, because <laughs> this is going to gain momentum, Okay. right? Okay. We're starting at three million. I mean, how many people go to, what's a big human festival? Well, funny you say that, because I've looked into that. Do you want to know what the Guinness World Record is for the largest free concert attendance? Only absolutely. And who headlined it? Free concert... So it's the Guinness World Record for the largest free concert attendance. And it was staged by a UK artist on Copacabana Beach, Rio de Janeiro. Oh, um, Play at home, listeners. Do you have a year? I do. New Year's Eve, 1994. 1994. George Michael. No. It's Barry Manilow. No. Is he even English? I don't know why I went there. <laughs> do you want me to tell you? Yeah. So... This artist reportedly attracted an audience of 4.2 million people. Okay. It was Rod Stewart. Really? Rod Stewart. 4.2 oh. million people turned up to see Rod Stewart on Copacabana Beach. But my favourite little line at the end of this is, although this figure is believed to include those who turned up solely for the fireworks display at midnight. <laughs> <laughs> actually, 4 million people turned up to see the fireworks. 200,000 people actually wanted to see Rod Stewart. Yeah. 4,199,999 people turned up for some fireworks, and also Rod Stewart arrived. <laughs> <laughs> 
that I think Rod Stewart sets a pretty good benchmark. But then I had a look at, you know, you look at some of the pilgrimages and human festivals like that, and there have been festivals, um, Hindu festivals that have attracted like 50 million people along certain rivers in India and all that kind of stuff. So humans set a pretty high benchmark for festival gatherings as well. Yeah, it seems that way. But yeah, so so these bats were kicking off with 3 million. Okay. Biggest human festival, 4.2. Yeah. That's the mark we've got to try yeah. and meet and or beat. Okay. And, and the bats fall short of Rod Stewart. These bats okay. fall oh, short right. of Rod Stewart. So do we know which species of bat we're talking about here? So as with any cave, there's going to be a mix of species. Okay. Um, I think I saw that there are possibly 12 to 13 living in this oh, cave, okay. different species. However... The figure which is thrown connected to the species is the wrinkle-lipped bats. Right. Is that Rod Stewart? (laughs) (laughs) Just another great little fact I found for this cave, Mm -hmm. Deer Cave. Just as you go in the entrance, there is a stalactite formation which looks like ex-US president Abraham Lincoln. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But these bats pour out of this cave every night in an almost river of bats in the sky. Uh And people go to witness the spectacle. Bats, of course, go and flood the jungle. And there's 3 million bats eating an average of apparently 3,000 insects a night, mm-hmm. which means that each night wow. these bats are eating 9 billion insects. Jeez. One of the figures I found for how many insects bats can eat in a night yeah. was measured in mosquitoes per hour. So, <laughs> MPH. <laughs> I found that as a figure. It was 1,200 mosquitoes per hour. And I want all future food interactions to be measured in mosquitoes per hour. Yeah. So, what's quite- the equivalent of this yeah. McDonald's meal in MPH? <laughs> now, that's one bat cave. But that, of course, got me on to where's the biggest bat cave colony in mm. the world? And can it top a stalactite form of an ex-political figure as good as Abraham Lincoln? Or can it top Rod Stewart? (laughs) Yeah. Because these are the two bars we've now set for ourselves. Does it feature dead presidents? Is it a bigger crowd than Rod Stewart at Copacabana 1994? So this cave is called Bracken Cave. Okay. And we're now in Austin, Texas. Right. Which, because of this cave, is termed the bat capital of the world. <laughs> okay. It's the, the seat, the home, I guess, of Bat mm. Conservation International. Ah. And this is the largest bat colony in the world and one of the largest mammal Gatherings. communities, okay. congregations, whatever we want to go with, yeah. Oh, is this... Are these the Mexican free-tailed bats? They are the Mexican free-tailed bats. Ah. Now, this... We've started with an event which is every night. Every night outside Deer Cave, these three million bats pour out. We're now going to... This is a maternity roost this cave so they're migratory bats but between march to august it said late summer so Mm -hmm. i've gone with august september the females are in this cave it's pretty much just females raising their young how many bats jack do we think how many female bats are in this yeah so this is only half the population yeah half the population picking one cave to give birth and raise their young i'm gonna say so we had three i'm gonna say i'm just gonna 10 times it's 30 million Oh, a bit too high. 20 okay. million. 20 million. Okay. Now, I say a bit too high. Current estimates are around 20 million. Mm-hmm. Historic records describe a cloud of bats leaving the cave as being 30 miles long Jesus. by 20 miles wide. Wow. <laughs> Christ almighty. <laughs> like, block out the sun. Wow numbers of bats supposedly left this cave yeah and remember 
This is just females. And so there are baby bats there as well. And the density that the bats are in this cave is unbelievable. After the females have given birth, so they arrive in March, they give birth around the kind of June-ish window, mm -hmm. the baby bats have been found in concentrations of 500 bats per square foot. Hold on, I'm just trying... <laughs> so these are baby bats yeah. as well, so they're going to be kind of jelly bean little size, jelly beans little size. jelly beans. But if you imagine almost two A4 pages next to each other, yeah. 500 baby bats. Are they naked little jelly beans? Yeah. They're pink little jelly beans. Yeah. I'm just thinking, like, that's, it's quite triggering. I'm imagining, like, walking in there, looking up, because initially, as your eyes adjust, you'd probably just think that it's the rock, and then it'd all start wriggling. Well, imagine they were on Abraham Lincoln's stalactite oh. face. <laughs> on his, as his beard. Yeah. <laughs> his writhing beard. Four score and 20 bats. The incredible thing about this is that at a density like that, we know that the mothers, when they go out to feed at night, are able to come back and locate yeah. their individual pup in that swirling mass of babies on the wall. Yeah. Be it, and it's gonna be through their call. So obviously when they first start going out, the pup's gonna be clinging to them. Yeah. And then as they start to do trips out to feed, leaving the baby, they don't just shoot straight out. They kind of like leave the baby, hang around for a little bit, possibly, remembering what their kid sounds like right. <laughs> <laughs> and they must go out and come back twice each night to feed their baby so it's exhausting yeah. on the mothers this yeah, maternity yeah. route having I mean, to go out feed remember they're trying to find about three thousand insects a night come back feed the kid back out do the shopping come back feed the kid back yeah. out do the shopping yeah and when it comes to the babies doing their first flight remember how dense it is it you're learning to walk mm -hmm. you've got a whole park living yeah, room perhaps yeah. kitchen these babies just have to take a total leap of faith they have to let go of the rock with thousands of other babies trying to take their first flight they've never even tested their echolocation uh, of course it is just let go start flapping hope you don't hit anything because if they do crash into another one and fall to the floor yeah is that is that game over? that's game over oh. you've got one shot at making it because the floor of this cave is crawling with flesh-eating domestic beetles. And the line I've seen is that they can strip a baby bat of flesh in minutes. Holy shit. It's pretty tough. It's metal, isn't it? Yeah. That's one of the other things, just to slightly off the bats for a minute, I don't know if you found when you were um, researching festivals, a lot of animal gatherings end in a lot of death. Oh, yeah. Salmon. Live all yeah. their lives out at sea, swim up a river, have sex, die. Yeah. Mayflies. All their life as lava, come up out of the water, have sex, die. Yeah, this one's actually slightly different to a lot of the mass gatherings and things that I'd looked at in that these are the babies dying. A lot of them are, like you say, it, the mass gathering is spawning. And yeah. then once that, then, you know, they're done. Yeah, tremendous amount of have sex, die yeah. at yeah, yeah. nature festivals. Probably a lot of that on Rod Stewart's concert in Copacabana Beach. Well, <laughs> um, another quick fact about the Bat Cave is that this is on, I think, the cave and the surrounding something like 1,400 acre site are all protected because the concentration of bats here has been recognised by the farmers because it saves them close to a million dollars a year in pest control 
with yeah. these bats going out every night. So it's this huge protected site. It's agreed between like the city development board that no lights can be put near it to keep it dark and everything, which I think is very that's, lovely. That's great. Yeah, for, for more an of that. For an animal which is normally, certainly given the last year we've had not had the best PR. No, certainly not. <laughs> it's great to see, you know, these bats getting some real, uh, real protection. Yeah, big love for the bats. These bats come the end of the season and this is key because I'm going to start to weave these together, I okay. hope. A beautiful okay. tapestry of nature festivals. And they migrate south to winter in Mexico. Mm -hmm. We're going to follow them south to Mexico for our next nature festival. Now we've gone from every day of the year to a couple months of the year uh -huh. to one night of the year. Okay, so we're now one night of a year in Mexico. Yeah. And there are these cactuses there which have flowers which bloom for one night of the oh. year. And it's a group of cactuses called the well, serious cactus. Yeah, <laughs> but spelt differently, of course. They're also called, now these are some of their more common names for these beautiful blossoming cacti, princess of the night, queen of the night. Mm -hmm. The Honolulu queen. Okay. We're in Mexico. Yeah. <laughs> Don't know what's happening there. Christ in the manger. Right. One special night? Uh, yeah, well, maybe, maybe, yeah, I guess. And Donna de Noche. Oh, that's good. I mean, all of them, mm -hmm. barring maybe Christ in the Manger, could probably be used as pseudonyms for prostitutes. But <laughs> The Honolulu Queen. The Honolulu Queen. Ahoy. Princess of the Night. Queen of the Night. Donna de Noche. Yeah, Christ in the Manger. Christ in the Manger, not, not, so, <laughs> yeah. not so much. I'm just going to pop down to Soho to visit Christ in the Manger. Now... Plants in the same geographic area all seem to bloom at the same time. Okay. So it's tied to temperature, humidity, stuff like that. Interestingly, we seem to think there's a possible link to the lunar cycle because blossomings are more frequent around full moons. Right. And if they bloom at night, I'm presuming they are pollinated by either moths or bats. It's all weaving it's together, all Jack. It's all weaving together. Here's the tapestry. <laughs> So, yeah, they are pollinated by bats. Cool. Now, staying in Mexico, we've gone from, well, actually, this is now back to, on my progression of once a night, we've kind of gone back to this is now an annual migration, but okay. I wanted to weave the Mexican okay. piece cool. of the tapestry in. Now, these are, I'm very sure you've heard of these, the monarch butterflies. Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah. This is a great one. So have you got any? What I know about the monarch butterflies is that they move from, they go from Mexico up to Canada or maybe not as far as Canada. Um, but they, their migration takes place in stages in that the adult, one adult doesn't complete the entire journey, but they lay a, the next round of caterpillars at kind of a staging point and those caterpillars hatch knowing that they've got to fly to the next staging point, which they then lay a next batch of, and then they go up like, so it's, it's a migration across generations. Yeah. So, you're half right. Okay. That's what I thought as well. Right. And then I dug into it. Okay. And it's almost even mind-blowing. So, these are millions of butterflies. You're dead right in the geography. It's northeastern US to Canada, mm -hmm. that border area, migrating south to overwinter in Mexico, mm -hmm. and then back up for the, for the warmer summer. Millions of butterflies take part, but no single butterfly does the whole round trip. Right. Going northwards, it exists in stages. So right. if we start, let's start our year in Mexico. Mm -hmm. We've overwintered, 
and it's a tiny tiny geographic area that they go to to hang out on these oyamel fir trees so it's a specific type of tree on the specific yeah. top of some specific mountains that they go to hang out i on. think i've seen the pictures you go there and it's just like dripping with monarch butterflies and they're all like mass roosting together overnight or whatever and yeah. if you go in the morning then you can see them all taking off and it's just like this amazing you know magical avatar level yeah experience and i'm pretty sure that in some instances like the concentration of butterflies on branches of these trees is so much that they can pull bits of the wow. trees off like that is the the density of butterflies here yeah. um so we're starting there we've had our winter we're waking up slowly we start to travel north now, the generations going north do it in stages because okay. they're basically tracking or the caterpillars need a certain plant to feed on. Yes, called milkweed. Milkweed. Yeah. Milkweed. So they're tracking that. As this plant blooms northwards, I don't know if you've ever seen those things of like spring traveling northwards. Obviously, plants further south bloom first than the ones up north. So the stages of the butterflies going north are in a kind of six-week cycle mm -hmm. where the adults go, lay the eggs, and die so it takes several generations to get from mexico up northwards when they get to the top and it comes to going back though they give birth to what is called the super generation right <laughs> and the one generation does the whole trip south wow so that so the whole generation does the one trip south they then overwinter in mexico and then they do the first leg of that yeah. back to yeah. start yeah, to start geez. it off again so it got they go from living for kind of five to six weeks, I think. Yeah. To the super generation lives for about eight months. Wow. Doing the whole trip south. South overwintering first leg north. Yeah. How does something like that... Well, can you imagine missing out on being that generation? <laughs> or the last one, you, you die at five weeks knowing that, oh, my son will live for eight months and quest like no other butterfly before him. Yeah, see the sights of an entire continent. Yeah. yeah, but they think part of the reason is tied to the fact that going northwards, they're restricted by the plants. They can't, they can't travel north for, faster than the plants are there to eat. Right, yeah, yeah. But going south they can use air currents. So they've kind of got this limiting factor going north, then they have their summer, finish summer, hop back on the yeah. M6. And if they don't need to lay <laughs> eggs, then they're not dependent on the milkweeds having grown, so they can just feed off of any flowers, can't they, on the way back? Another quick bit about the monarch butterflies. Monarch <laughs> butterflies have been bred on the International Space Station. What? Yeah. Are they going to migrate back from there? <laughs> I would, that's the that is the the hyper generation. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe there's just a single butterfly on the ISS beating its head against the window, <laughs> just desperate. It's like I need to go to Mexico now. This next bit was a bit of a challenge to weave into my tapestry uh -huh. and find the link. Yeah, but I think I got it. So monarchs, whilst they're endangered, they're threatened by a range of factors, pesticides, etc. One of which is avocado production. Oh. Interestingly, it's threatening the Mexican overwintering site. So think about that when you're next having your Exactly. Smashed avo on toast. Yeah. Whole grain. Yeah. And a poached egg. That was very nice when you made that though. I know. But now I, now I feel very <laughs> now I feel very guilty about now I'm it. Racked with butterfly <laughs> guilt. Yeah, I'd much rather have monarch butterflies. I mean have them in the world not have them for breakfast well, because yeah. <laughs> smashed monarch butterfly <laughs> on whole grain bread
Chapter four. Yeah. The sardine run. Oh, okay. Now. Okay. We're now, because whereas all the others were kind of North America based, I had to find some link to get us over to South Africa. Right. We're doing it on the fact that big numbers of animals feed predators. Yes. Monarchs, toxic, they're kind of fine. These sardines are having a rough day Uh, of it. uh, Okay. Now, sardine run used to happen every year. Mm -hmm. However, it's becoming increasingly rare. It's happening every two, maybe every three years. And it's thought to be triggered by the water temperatures. So mm-hmm. it needs cold water to happen mm-hmm. as the ocean seas are warming up, happening a bit less and less. Yeah. East Africa, we're South Africa, Mozambique coast. There's a current there. And we've now moved into the billions of wow. numbers. Okay. But in terms of biomass, it's yeah. thought to rival the wildebeest going across Africa. Like uh, the quantity of sardines here. Like the weight, the actual weight of animal. If you took all of the sardines and weighed them. Yeah. You'd need a really big kitchen scale. <laughs> <laughs> but you're talking, because I think the wildebeest is, I think it's like one and a half million wildebeest on the wildebeest migration or something like that. Who'd win? One and a half million wildebeest or billions a billion of sardines? <laughs> and the shoals, now I think this is individual shoals as opposed to one super shoal, but mm-hmm. an individual okay. shoal can be more than seven kilometers long, one and a half kilometers wide. And up to 30 meters deep. Wow. Now, 30 meters is a 10-story building. Wow. Okay. Of solid So we're, we're sat in a, a two-story building. Yeah. We're sat on the second floor of a two-story building. And I'm imagining... Look, at there's a window just next to me. And I'm imagining looking out... And it already seems ridiculous to think about a shoal of fish going from the top of this roof <laughs> down to the floor. <laughs> Never mind that being, what, five times that? Yeah, there would be eight stories of fish above us. That's scary. <laughs> if we were sat in, yeah. What follows these sardines is an army of predators. Oh, I bet. Starting with the superpod of dolphins. Yeah. Which can contain between 5,000 to 18,000 dolphins. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing is, the thing is, if you say to someone 5,000 dolphins... Dolphins conjures quite a, a nice yeah. Disney-esque... If I said to you 18,000 <laughs> hyenas, you know, they're super predators of yeah. the sea. Yeah, These yeah, are yeah. torpedo-shaped death machines. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, if you're a sardine... Death it, that can solve math problems. Can't yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, yeah. It's torpedo-shaped fury with a calculator. Like... It's 18,000 of them, right? <laughs> and the, the the dolphins are like part one of the sardines okay, nightmare here. Okay, right. Because what they do, being the smart ones, they start to engineer and splinter off groups of sardines from the shoal mm. into what are called bait balls. Yeah, I've seen this. Attenborough talks about these. He loves a bait ball. Oh, who doesn't? Now, the bait balls can be 10 to 20 metres wide by about 10 metres deep. Right. And the dolphins skewer them off, splinter them off, and then come the sharks. Mm-hmm. So these sardines not only have <laughs> incredibly intelligent predators after them, yeah. they've got predators older than trees after them. <laughs> so they've been hunted by time itself. <laughs> then come the gannets. Yes. So they've got death from above. Yeah, it's like being hunted by lightning when gannets start diving. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I saw that they can hit depths of 15 metres in a dive. Yeah. So, again, still... <laughs> so you're, you're, being pushed up, you're being pushed up to the surface by dolphins. 
You're then being attacked by sharks. Yep. And you've got gannets pouring down from the sky. Yep. Then come the seals. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the poor sardines. Okay. Then come the whales. The wh- <laughs> okay. So there is, and I think I've lost the species here, but I think it was the bird's whale, but there is a specific whale which is there for the sardines. Right. But what you've also got is you've got humpback whales migrating in the opposite direction down <laughs> right. the same channel who are just like, I'll have a pop at a sardine. <laughs> <laughs> so the dolphins are there to herd them. The uh-huh. sharks are there to get them. The gannets are there to skewer them. The whales are there to swallow them. The seals are there to chomp them. The cormorants show up, <laughs> right? And cormorants, they're just there to try their best yeah. because objectively one of the worst birds. <laughs> yeah. And then... The penguins arrive. Oh, of course. It now just sounds like you're spinning the wheel of random animals. It is literally. And just being like, and then the tigers showed up with their little snorkel masks on. <laughs> <laughs> and then came the snakes. The monarch butterflies from space. <laughs> so the penguins show up, and then the last, you know, lot to show up. Yeah. Just to really, well, actually, these ones show up and are arguably giving the sardines a break. Right. It's the great white sharks. Oh, because they're, are they trying to eat everything else? They're there to eat everything. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. The sardine's greatest ally. The sardine's just getting absolutely battered, and then it's just the portal scene from Endgame. Yeah. <laughs> on your left, as the, the great whites emerge out of the depths. <laughs> and that is the Army of Predator Festival. That's, that's a food festival. Now, that's an example of a huge group getting absolutely mullered by predators yeah. for all being in the same place. Yes. But our final nature festival, yeah, because we are now measuring things in the trillions. I just want to put in perspective, when we're talking about millions, billions and trillions, it's easy to think, well, a million's a lot. Yeah. But I found this really cool way of putting in perspective the size difference mm-hmm. between millions, billions and trillions. Yeah, Okay. Amazing. The easiest way to do it is by putting it in the perspective of time. So a million seconds yeah. roughly equates to 11 and a half days. Okay? All right. That's a million seconds. So if we're talking about a million fish. That's 11 and a half days of fish. 11 and a half days of fish. A billion seconds is 32 years. Jesus. So you've gone from 11 and a half days to 32 years. So of now fish. you're talking about trillions... So a trillion seconds. 500 years. 31,709 oh, years. God. So a million, 11 and a half days. A billion, 32 years. A trillion seconds is 31,709 years. So that that's just a way, as we move into an animal that now you're saying, you know, we're talking about trillions. That's just putting into perspective the amount that we're talking. That is bonkers so we are now in the trillions for chapter five the cicadas this particular group of cicadas i'm going to be Mm. talking about are brood x brood x also known as the great eastern brood and the reason they're called that is because these cicadas emerge from the ground once every 17 years sardines every couple years we're now once every 17 years and the reason for that Mm. will become well part of the reason for that i'll get to just a bit more about these cicadas they emerge every 17 years and each group 
Each emergence is called a brood. Yeah. So this is brood X, yep. but there are 15 other broods which okay. appear in other years. Right. But brood X are showing up this year. They're showing up end of May, early June. So I sh- we're recording this mid-May. We're recording this in a pre-brood X world. Yes. You're listening to this... During, like, in I was, I was going to say post-event, but probably during the event, mid-event. So, God knows how the world has changed when you're listening <laughs> to this. When these trillions of cicadas have burst from the soil. Yeah. So they spend ninety-nine point five percent of their life cycle underground, as uh, a nymph sucking the sap from a tree root. Yeah. And then, after seventeen years of that. They all crawl to the surface in their trillions to emerge as adults. Because how big how big's a cicada? I reckon thumb size. Yeah. A decent thumb. I think. An inch, two inches, I think. Yeah. Okay. They have very long wings as well. What's coming up, or could possibly have happened, has been termed the great cicada hatching of 2021. <laughs> or, and this is a real festival name, Cicada Palooza. <laughs> <laughs> You could be hearing this in a post Shikada Palooza world. Yeah. You might be enjoying it. It could be great. Quite why 17 years. And there are some other things which do this, but it's called a mast year. Or a mast year, maybe. Yeah. M-A-S-T. It's mast if you're up here in the north. Well, exactly. I don't know what I'm doing with my accent. This can be equated in an easier sense to acorns, basically, yes. because this is something which is happening every year. Do you... You mass, sound like you're... With mast years. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, um, a mast year is basically like a, a super crop of acorns, nuts. So we've talked about a beech tree, then beech mast is the seeds that it puts down. And a mast year is if you have a great crop of whether it be acorns, nuts, seeds, whatever they might be. And do you know why they do it? No. So if the oak tree yep. put out the same number of acorns every year... Yep the population of acorn predators would meet that level. Okay, so we're talking squirrels, jays, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. Exactly. Every mice, stuff coming along to eat the acorns would hit saturation and would stay there. So Uh year after year, the acorns would be basically getting hammered. Right. But if you limit the amount of acorns you're producing to, Mm say, 10% of your capacity, Mm -hmm. you're also limiting acorn predators to 10% of their capacity. Right. Which means that if in one year you suddenly dump 100% acorns, there's still the same number of squirrels as if there was a tiny amount of acorns, which means that suddenly the survival of the baby acorns shoots through the roof because what you've done is you've engineered the predators to exist at a smaller population level so that you can suddenly explode with all your kids right this is basically what the shikadas are doing right there are so many shikadas here what was it 32,000 years of shikadas (laughs) like (laughs) that they completely change and distort the the ecosystem. Yeah. If they were coming up year on year on year on year on year, they'd constantly be getting hammered. But by not existing for 17 years and then erupting, yeah. there just aren't enough predators out there to eat them to and eat finish them. them off. Wow. So they're able to kind of slip under the net almost. Now, when they come up, they are going to get hammered because yeah. everything goes to town. They're coming up to mate, aren't they? Yeah. So they're coming up, they sit on a branch and they make, I mean, we've both heard cicadas. Yeah. And they're like a much less tuneful version of crickets. It's Some like, people like them. Some people think it's a really nice tuneful noise. It's like radio static. Yeah. It's like someone's just 
got a radio, tuned it to static, and put it on and full blast. Like, aggressive. It's really, I don't like it at all. If it was in an urban environment, you'd file a noise complaint. Yeah, it's just... <laughs> like that, that's yeah. my impression of a cicada. It was a pretty good impression of a cicada, I've got to say. <laughs> Did you find anything on how they do it? On how they make the noise? No, on how they know when to pop up. Isn't it to do with the soil temperature? Is that it? As the soil temperature rises, that's their key for emergence. Part of it. Okay. So they need, obviously, to be able to keep track of 17 years because if you're the lone cicada which pops up on your own, <laughs> you're getting hammered. That's <laughs> like, yeah, turning up to a party. You've been told that the party's going to happen at that time and you just turn up. Exactly. You get the date wrong on the yeah, calendar yeah. and you're like, oh, shit. And in this instance, it's basically like turning up to speed dating a week <laughs> early. You know, the chairs aren't even out. No yeah. one's expecting you. Yeah. <laughs> you just go home empty-handed. So... They're keeping track of the soil temperature, but they also, one of the other ideas is that because they're feeding off the roots and the trees, they have some kind of molecular interpretation of what they're feeding, and they can know when the trees are in leaf and when the trees don't have in leaf. Oh. Because... I guess because sugars and things are. Exactly, yeah. Because in 2007, Mm -hmm. in Cincinnati, a particularly warm January and then very cold February made the trees have leaves in January, drop them in February, and have leaves again after February. So the trees had 17 leaf sets in a 16-year period. Got ya. And a load of cicadas came out. Oh. So they think they could somehow be tracking time by counting how many leaf cycles are going on. The, The kind of emergence itself in early June, yeah, probably soil temperature. They're like, it's warm enough to come up now. Let's all go up. But what year? But the 17-year thing is possibly connected mm. to drinking, yeah, the, the tree sap oh. and knowing if they've got leaves or not. Because in Clever. a couple of years where it's gone a bit skew-whiffy, yeah. the cicadas have come misjudged it. it. Like, it's the numbers that I just can't get my head around. Yeah. So Maryland is the epicenter of the cicada emergence. And in some areas, there's 1.5 million cicadas per acre. I think I saw the similar thing. Because did you work out what an acre is? No. 1.5 million per acre. An acre is 15 tennis courts or 156 parking spaces. Now, that means that at 1.5 million per acre, we're at a cicada to parking space ratio of 9,615.38 cicadas per parking space. So imagine parking your car, going into the shop, coming back... The Shikada Palooza started, <laughs> and now there's nine and a half thousand <laughs> on your car. Two-inch bugs on your car, screaming <laughs> what is essentially insect for someone. Fuck me, I'm dead in a week. <laughs> How is there even soil like in these in these yeah. epicenters? Yeah. How is it not if you've got this many cicada larvae in the in the ground how is there space for soil I just feel like you're just walking on a bed of cigarna larvae it's crazy it's insane interestingly of everything everything else has a great year in the 17 year cycle because I was getting just reams of literally anything I mean this year in particular there are chefs human chefs lining up what they're going to do with the cicadas oh. like everything is on board turkeys Copperhead snakes, bears, yeah. raccoons. I bet raccoons love cicadas. Yeah. Except one animal's population goes down in the cicada bumper year. It's moles. Oh. Yeah. 
Are they eating the cicadas when they're under the ground? Well, because everything else can't get to them, right? Whereas yeah. the cicadas have got this system worked out so that once every 17 years, they flood all the predators above ground. But for the 16 years between that, the that moles balls. are having the time of their life. <laughs> the moles are just looking up at all the, the hungry copperheads and yeah. uh, birds just being like, yeah, fuck you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> get a shovel, you wanker. <laughs> I like to think moles look at anything and say, get a shovel, you wanker. <laughs> and so, starting with the three million wrinkle-lip bats nightly festival, I hope I've brought us pinging around the world to the final and soon-to-be trillion figure Shikada Palooza. There is no more fitting celebration for the Festival of Nature than the biggest nature festival in the world happening during the week that it's on. Okay, it's now time for that part of the show where we take one of nature's magnificent creatures and we pit it against Roddy Shaw in a fight to the death. Now, today's animal has been suggested by Matt Possels on Instagram and it is the pangolin. Oh no. Let's get to know our foe. If you don't know what a pangolin is, they're also known as the scaly anteaters. If you don't know what an anteater is, then I can't help you. Um, <laughs> but then if, you, if you can't work it out, we really can't help you. <laughs> but they are uh, comprised of four species that you find across sub-Saharan Africa and Asia. And I've taken the liberty, because it was just suggested as pangolin, of picking one particular species for us to focus on so we can get a true tail of the tape of what you're going to be up mm, against. Mm. So I have settled on the tree pangolin, oh. which is native to Africa. Their most notable feature is, of course, the fact they're covered in large, hard scales, which are made out of keratin, the same stuff that uh, our fingernails are made out of, but much harder, which gives them the appearance of, and I quote, a pine cone. Is what it says here, and it's true. They really do. They use these scales as protection, and they can curl up into a ball when threatened. The name pangolin actually comes from the Malay word penguling, meaning the one who rolls up, which is cute. They have short little legs, long claws, and the reason I chose the tree pangolin is because this has got a prehensile tail, Mm. which it uses to hang from trees. They eat, as the name Scaly Anteater suggests, ants, termites, which they get using their very long tongue, and they've got powerful claws for digging them out of the ground or trees. Poor vision, lack any teeth whatsoever, and in terms of size, we're talking for a tree pangolin, about a metre long, including its tail, and a weight of about two to two and a half kilograms. So, Roddy Shaw, the question is, how many tree pangolins are too many tree pangolins? Well, first of all, I want to start with just saying that this fight is borderline going to be emotional trauma for me because they are, I think, my fa- they're definitely top five animals for me. They're the most trafficked animal on the planet. One of the most critically endangered animals in the world. A bigger number of pangolins than rhinos, tigers and elephants are put together, are poached each year. Wow. I have donated to pangolin conservation. I have a painting of a pangolin in my flat. But for the next five to seven minutes, Jack, I'm going to put all that aside and I'm going to fuck some pangolins clean up. (laughs) Right? Now, I don't know if this is as much about my strengths as Mm. it is about their weaknesses. Yes. Having said that, first off, I think my biggest strength is that I'm not an ant. (laughs) Yeah. So, boom, tick. Yeah. 
I think although they've got they've got sharp claws that they can use to rip open logs and the ground and things, but I actually think the offense on a pangolin is pretty low. I mean, they can barely see, and they don't yeah. have teeth. Like, <laughs> yeah. they're about as offensively equipped as a worm. Like, they <laughs> don't have teeth, they can barely see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The Venn diagram, there's overlap. However, there are those claws, mm-hmm. and incredible defense. Possibly one of the tankier animals we've had to date. When I was looking at this, I came across videos of, like, lions just kind of batting them around yeah. as a ground pangolin was, was all curled up and them not being able to get into it. But we've got to remember, in this scenario, you're trying to fight these animals off. Yeah. So they're coming for you. They're not in their defensive I've clearly positions. angered. Yeah, you've angered however many pangolins are coming for you. But they're not defensive. They're coming at me. Yeah. But then the moment I... It's waves, isn't it? So Mm. one pangolin comes at me. I go to punch that pangolin. It coils up. That pangolin is now secure. Yeah, Then the next pangolin... They just... If each one takes one swipe and then hunkers down... Yeah. It's an incredible tactic. It's like a Roman phalanx. (laughs) (laughs) With prehensile tails. With prehensile tails. It said that they could use their prehensile tails not only to grab on on trees and kind of swing from branches, but to also use their prehensile tails to peel off bark to get to insects underneath. So they're pretty, they seem pretty dexterous. A meter long pangolin, tails a decent chunk of that, wrap around your arm. They're pretty strong if it was able to grab hold of a tree to like hold, hold you in position. Well, they could, they could pull me down you know in lord of the rings where saruman says to the orcs pull down the trees yes so they throw ropes around the trees to pull it down yeah right that's what i'm now seeing with these pangolins they're all going to come at me i'm a i'm a big guy jack yeah and they're going to shoot their tails up on me and steadily just pull me down to the ground then it's going to be some gulliver's travel situation where i've been lashed to the earth with pangolin tails <laughs> with the tank-like bodies yeah. steadily scratching and or licking me to death right tree pangolins yes therefore arboreal yeah therefore the arena cannot have anything for them to climb yes ice rink you did fight an aardvark on an ice rink though so ah uh, but see it's a similar big claws it it's, it's the termite nature of the of the animal yeah that's true just the steers, defi- my, definite steers parallels. my mind there hmm paddling pool Right, okay, here we go. if they curl up into a ball, they'll submerge their head below water. Oh, this is smart. (laughs) So by doing it in a paddling pool, they can't possibly curl up, because in curling up, suddenly heads below water, they're going to have to uncurl to breathe. This is genius. It puts a timer on their defence. This is genius. So we're doing it in a paddling pool. Going back to the kind of Gulliver's Travel, pull the trees down with the orcs approach... This is quite a high-risk situation. If they pull me down in the paddling pool, they submerge me. Oh, my God. I can't cope with this. (laughs) (laughs) This is straight chaos, this pangolin battle. And also, they're hunted to be put into soup. Yeah, Chinese. it's a Chinese medicine thing, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's total objective bullshit, but that's for another day. But what I'm thinking is, will they have some kind of innate fear of of (laughs) Of a a, a, a paddling pool for some kind of soup... Soup trauma. <laughs> so now the arena you got in their heads. The arena has both physical and mental advantages over the pangolins. So, pangling paddling pool. Also alliteration. It's all coming yeah, together. It's all coming together. So how many pangolin do I reckon could pull me down and one fewer than that? How big are they? 
They're about a metre long. And they can use their tail to pull bark off a tree? Yeah. Pull How bark. heavy do we think they are? Uh, they're about two to two and a half kilograms. Two to two and a half kilos. So that's a couple bags of potatoes, which is apparently how I measure. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> critically you endangered species. How many bags of potatoes you could fight off in a paddling pool? Yeah, and they're quite heavy. They're, they're, they're just dent and like. I think eleven. Eleven. Eleven pangolins in a in a paddling pool off. Okay, so we put a call out for some nature hypothetical questions. And to be fair, you guys have responded with some absolute blinders. So we're going to answer a couple. And I'm going to start with one that's coming on Instagram from... Now, there's no... I couldn't find a real name associated with this. It's Mrs. underscore Passamheath. Anyway, I I don't know. You'll know who you are if you're listening to this. Shout out to you. But it's a great question. And it's a nice simple one. What two animals would you switch sizes? Now, their suggestion was they would like to see a huge dog-sized ladybird. But then, I guess, if you're switching the sizes, you're also getting a, you're also getting a ladybird-sized dog, too. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So, so, so which, which animals do you think what, what are we switching sizes? Right. I kind of already had this in my head. I didn't know the question was coming, but mm-hmm. just from how I apparently spend my time with vacant thoughts, mm-hmm. I want a cat-sized walrus. Right, okay. Now, that does also imply, because of this particular question, a walrus-sized cat. Yes, it does. I like that part of this question. Yeah. There are ramifications for There are ramifications. It's not just a one-way street, (laughs) you know. The path to tiny walrus is a two-way road, as they say. Guinea pig-sized rhino, but then rhino-sized guinea pig. I feel like we're kind of halfway there with a capybara. Yeah, but it'd be truly terrifying. (laughs) Imagine that in your allotment. <laughs> is it always saying that in this scenario, when you choose the swap, like all across the world at that exact moment, the animals switch sizes? So if you go for cat-sized God. walrus, all of a sudden, every cat in everybody's house suddenly becomes a walrus-sized cat. The question is, what two animals would you switch sizes? So I think we have to think of the real-world applications for if we're just switching sizes of animals randomly. Yeah, because it's not like, would you switch for your interest or whatever it's full stop so what can we do with pigeons well so i I was thinking along the bird route and i was thinking i'd like hummingbirds to be a little bit bigger and but not loads bigger i'd just like them to be big enough that i that they're more easily seen yeah so i could swap hummingbird with yeah something maybe like large pigeon size wood pigeon and then i'm not losing any sleep that we've suddenly got really small wood pigeons yeah but now we've got bigger hummingbirds yeah that's nice and I'm, again, if it's like the overnight thing, I want to see the six o'clock news in London of being like, and in today's news, every pigeon in London is now tiny. But what about, I mean, if you did it with whales and goldfish, that would really cause havoc, right? <laughs> if it's happening everywhere at once. But if it is, if it is like you were saying with your original, you just get to have one of those animals. Yeah. Having something like a humpback whale in or a, f- a minky whale in a tank. Yeah, it'd be incredible. It'd be amazing. Tiniest. <laughs> yeah. I'd love that. That's why I've always, I've always wanted, as if it's an option. But I've always thought like a tiny walrus would be such a great pet. It would. How good would that be? Just yeah. like come round. What's that? Little walrus. Oh, it'd be lovely. Bears. What can we do with bears? bears. Smaller bears would be nice. That's true. But something then becomes bear-sized. <laughs> yeah. Well, teddy bears, what's teddy bear size? Maybe like a rabbit. 
Yeah, but then you've got grizzly bear-sized rabbits. That's the. This is such a double-edged sword. <laughs> this question is terrifying. This question giveth and it taketh away. It does giveth and taketh away. I think in terms of like safest option, mm-hmm. I can't think of anything to beat hummingbird and pigeon. Okay. I think that That's is playing it safe. It's we're getting something which is a bit of a nuisance and making it small, and we're getting something which is really nice and making it big. I can't think of any other transaction that works like that. And the dream one-off is the walrus, so that I can have a tiny walrus. Here's one for you. This question comes from Instagram user PJ underscore Beefield, aka Pete. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Pete. And he's asked, best animal sidekick for a bank heist? Oh, this is a good one. Okay, so let's first start with what are the good attributes for a sidekick in a bank heist what role are they gonna take are they gonna be like the getaway driver are they gonna be in the bank with you well let's do your classic oceans 11 Mm -hmm. but break it down quicker there's getaway person yeah there's lookout person there's safe crack person and there's muscle Mm. i'm instantly thinking something that is intelligent but ruthless which has led me to two animals Mm -hmm. one i'm instantly ruling out because it's got no legs dolphin (laughs) which is not unless we're breaking into a bank in atlantis it's not particularly useful so then i'm thinking crow oh it's smart it's intimidating yeah you showed up to a bank with a crow on your shoulder or a raven it's like just go big yeah and i think it's like useful i think it's you know we know they can make tools yeah we know that they can learn um, to solve puzzles, yep. crack the safe. So with the crow, you're hitting two out of four heist types. Okay. So you've got your lookout yep. and you've got your safe crack. Okay. So getaway driver. Oh, I, I want to get out and I want the getaway driver to be a, a rhinoceros. Huge. I want to just jump on the back of a rhino because they can run... Like 30 miles an hour or something yeah, ridiculous. 35 or something so, insane. So, okay, the police are... I'm not going to outrun the police. Yeah. But I'm going to out-tank the police <laughs> on the back of a rhino. Crow's on my shoulder. We've got the swag. It's in the bag. The crow's holding it in its little beak. Out the bank, on the back of a rhino, and then we're off. Yeah, crow flying along. Making witty retorts to the police. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what a raven would do in a bank heist. Yeah. I feel like there must be someone out there who's robbed a bank with a parrot on their shoulder already. This is a really quick interjection. I saw someone in London walking down the street the other day, and as they were coming towards me, they had something on each shoulder, and I was trying to work out what they had. And as they got closer, they had a hyacinth macaw on each shoulder. <laughs> Dual wielding, akimbo hyacinth yeah. macaws. Now, for anyone out there who's not familiar, hyacinth macaws... They're the largest parrot, aren't they? They're big. Yeah, they're I don't know. I don't know if they're the largest, but, you know, they're... I'm funny feeling, or the biggest macaw, right? Maybe something's heavier or whatever. Talking about, yeah, a bird that's, you know, you're talking kind of a metre long. They're huge, yeah, right? Yeah, and they're bright blue, mm-hmm. and they've got a beak like a bolt cutter, yeah. right? This thing could have taken, gone through a, a child's wrist, right? This guy had one on each shoulder, and as I was about to ask him... Hello. <laughs> he turned into a HSBC well, no, and stuck them all up. But I saw his expression, and I've never seen this expression before, but I can only describe this expression as the face of a man who gets asked too often, 
what's the deal <laughs> with the parrots? <laughs> I've only seen the expression once in my life. I immediately understood this man's face walking down the street. I was going to ask, I saw his face, I thought, you know what? He's had that question a lot. Yeah. I'm gonna yeah. leave him on his day. Back to the back to yeah. the bank heist. Have you have you got any different different thoughts? Before I'd even worked out the the heist types, I had kangaroo. Oh, because you could stick it in the pouch and it'd be out of there, yeah. right? Yeah. And if it's a red kangaroo, they're the ones that are, you know stand two meters tall and can fuck you up. Yeah, they are jacked to the gills. Yeah, right? they're huge. I like that one. And so it's got like built-in swag bag and getaway capabilities. Yeah. Look out. What would be a good look? I mean, a chameleon. You've mm. got 360, like, CCTV, haven't you? Yeah. They've got one eye everywhere. That's good. Yeah. Chameleon would be a good one. And also, shit's the fuzz. And <laughs> it's gone. Blends in. Instantly gone. So you've got invisible CCTV yeah. with you. I should point out that we do know that chameleons don't change colour based on their background and that it is more of a mood thing. Before you start, everybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Don't even try. <laughs> we know. And then safe crack do you know what hummingbird i bet mm. they could go in with their bill and yeah. they're so precise with their i bet just yeah i've got getaway plus muscle in the kangaroo mm -hmm. look out with the chameleon safe crack with the hummingbird it's a solid team okay so we've got another question here this is from sam wisers on instagram nice and simple which limb would you replace with one from an animal Specifically, one limb only is what they say. So I'm initially thinking we're not talking about replacing your arms. We're talking about replacing an arm. Right. Limbs are just your arms and your legs, aren't they? Yeah, famously. So we can't, <laughs> we, we, we can't like your head. I suppose if you swap your head with another animal, then you're just Anubis. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So which limb would you replace from one of an animal, one limb only? Now, I think that rules out the legs. Because if you've got to keep a human leg and then have a leg of, say, a cheetah. A horse. Yeah. <laughs> One hoof. You're, you're a bit wonky. What would you be if you had that? You'd be like a one-eighth centaur. Mm. There's also, there's like the almost cop-out answer is another ape. Mm, like you have a chimp's hand. Yeah, that, you know. So you can retain all the function. Yeah, I... I don't like that, so I kind of want to rule those out for us. Yeah. But then there's a bit of like a kind of winter soldier vibe in that, right? You've got like mm. one gorilla arm. Ripping fridge doors open. Yeah, if you just like shaved it so you took all the hair off it, you'd just look built on one. Well, on, well <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. we both know what we thought. Yeah. <laughs> People in the street might interpret that extremely differently. Um, one limb. One arm. I keep coming back to tentacle. Oh. Like, I don't know why, because it wouldn't be mm. appealing in any way. But I think in terms of, like, most different, so I'm not doing the kind of chimpanzee cop-out, yeah. but also potentially still kind of useful, maybe gecko hand. See, I thought about this, but, but then I thought it rules out. What can you do with another? Exactly. You've, You've only got, got one. You stick to something with one hand. Yeah. Which is, if anything, just an inconvenience rather than a skill. Unless there's any, are there any, like, is there any competitive field where catching something? Oh, I guess if you were like. Like a baseball. Like if you were a baseball, but they've got the mitts. They've got the mitts. So you'd have rounders. Yeah. 
<laughs> cricket. Cricket's cricket's just your hands. Cricket, alright, yeah. So Yeah. Just sticks. One gecko hand. Professional cricket player. Yeah. This question comes to us from Alexandra Haddo. Mm-hmm. And it's a pretty quick fire question. Yep. Very simply, which animal is the sexiest objectively? <laughs> Excellent. Okay, so I've got one in mind. Okay, you go. No, no, no. I want to see okay. if you land where I landed. So I would say a secretary bird. But that's what I, I, I. That's where I was. That's, <laughs> and I like if you don't know what a secretary bird is, Google it. There is one particular picture of a secretary bird. Is it with the eyelashes? That when you see it, God, we're revealing a lot. <laughs> you'll go, wow. Something will stir inside you when you see that picture. It's a, basically a picture of a secretary bird with it's very close up, and it's got these amazing eyelashes. But they're a species of bird of prey. It's like an eagle on really long legs, yeah. And they stalk around in Africa, and they look amazing. Google a picture of a secretary bird. But I was trying to think of, you know, not everyone knows what a secretary bird is. So then I was thinking, you know, things like tigers are pretty sexy. But for me, it's it's secretary bird. It's almost no contest. Think of the average bird you see. They're normally quite short-legged, stumpy, chicken, pigeon, stuff like that, mm-hmm. right? This bird comes along. Not only has it got ridiculously long legs, but they've got, like, black... They've essentially got stockings on for part of the legs, right? And then the rest of them, they're in, like, this, you know, chic grey number yeah. with their feathers. Mm. Then they've got this crest coming off their head with, like, this incredible hairdo, like they're yeah. showing up to the Oscars or the Met Gala yeah. or something. They've had it all done. And then, like you said, they've got insanely long eyelashes. Yeah. Like, what is going on here? And amazing, like... It's almost as if they've got ridiculous eye makeup on because it's like orangey, yellowy yeah. all around their Wings eyes. Wings eyeliner. Yeah. I was trying to think of other things like, you know, like tiger to make it more accessible, but I'm not even sure we should. I, I think we should just tell you, if you don't know what a secretary bird is, Google it and agree with us instantly. Yeah. <laughs> because it is the right answer. Um, but yeah, a couple others, I guess, honorary mentions. Tiger, mm-hmm. that's an honorary mention. Yeah. Cheetah. Have you seen, there was a picture doing the rounds, I think it was taken in a, in a zoo somewhere, of a gorilla. Someone had just taken it, and it was in a certain position, in the way that it looked like it was on the front cover of... You know, like, Vogue or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it, but it was just giving this smouldering look at the camera. All right. And that was, there, there is a sexy picture of a gorilla out there. Right. We'll chuck the smouldering gorilla in for honorary mentions. Yeah, smouldering gorilla goes into honorary mentions. Any sexy reptiles? Sexy reptiles. Hmm. No, I don't know whether I'd describe them as sexy. They're just a bit too kind of alien and prehistoric, yeah. I think. Yeah. That said, I mean, if we are going to pick a reptile, again, eyelash vipers. Mm. They're eyelashes. very, very colourful. They've got something going on there. Is that? I'm running this by you. It's just coming to my head. Is there something sexy about octopuses? Octopi. Um, koi. Because I'm wrestling not with the it fish. in my head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that wasn't me going, not octopus, Jack, but koi. Let's get a carp in there. No, I meant, not perhaps sexy, but they've got a, oh, I'm in my cave, tentacle, oh. Oh, I'm so intelligent, yeah. but I only live for two years. I know. I can solve puzzles and no one really knows why. <laughs> why do I have no bones, but I'm this intelligent? Oh, come into my den. Octopus's garden. Look at all the decayed remnants of other visitors. Don't ignore all the crab shells. Yeah, no, don't, you know, just step around that dismembered body. No, do come in. Do, let me show you the place. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't work out whether there was something sexy about octopuses or not. Um, I mean, we have discussed on the on the podcast in the past, we've spoken about the smew. Smew, The yeah. duck, the black and white duck. The David Bowie bird. Yeah, I think that's a pretty sexy bird. 
my final honorary mention is a giraffe. Giraffes are quite, mm. you know, they've got something going. They know, they know they're strutting about the savannah. Yeah, you know, they're like, I think they are until they they start running. They start running or drinking, and then the whole facade like falls away. Do you know what, Jack? In many ways, I say the same thing about myself. <laughs> we could say the same thing about each other <laughs> with the height that we've got. Yeah. Least sexy? It's got to be a fish. Blobfish. Yeah. But then the say about the blobfish, it only the looks whole... like a blob when it's out of the water. Because it's for deep sea pressure, so it comes up and basically yeah. melts in on itself yeah, or something. So that's... that's unfair. Um... No, I think the last one I'm going to do for least sexy, and God bless them because I do love them, but have you seen the giant salamanders? <laughs> yes. They've, that's a rough deal. They live in like streams in China or whatever. China and Japan, I think there's two. There was one, I think it was a Chinese giant salamander, mm. and London Zoo had one for a bit, and it was called Professor Wu. Oh. I love that. W-U as in like a Chinese name, yeah. not... Wu. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not like he was great at parties, you know? <laughs> Nothing starts till <laughs> Professor Wu arrives. He had to make up for his uh, unsexy appearance by <laughs> incredible charisma. <laughs> incredible charisma. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Festival of Nature How Many Geese special. Jack, I had a great time. Excellent. We, we're very, very pleased to pop back up and do this special episode. Popping up like a cicada that <laughs> counted the wrong leaves. <laughs> How many geese rose from its slumber in the dirt to annoyingly shout. <laughs> nature facts into your ear. But a big thank you uh, to the Festival of Nature for asking us to do this special episode. And a thank you to Elastic FM for allowing us to record this in their studio at short notice but we'll be back again in the summer with our second series thank you again for listening that was how many geese or as your mum thought it was called who are your geese no where's my goose where's my goose <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you in the summer bye